welcome to the weekly podcast of Covenant Grace Menifee. Each week, we gather to better understand the teachings of the Bible and how to live them out in our daily lives. We hope and pray that you're encouraged by this week's message. Father, we thank you for this season of Christmas. We thank you for this opportunity to open your word together, to enjoy its contents, to, to see a picture of who you are, to see how you've revealed yourself in Jesus Christ. And we're just so thankful for the songs this season, songs that talk about how your son was born that man no more may die, born to raise the sons of earth, born to give them second birth. Lord, we just thank you for the, the beautiful truths that are all over in our culture this time. And we pray, Lord, that we take advantage of that. Lord, we pray that we would be witnesses for you, that we would clearly proclaim the good news of your son. Lord, we are so thankful, Lord. Make this a time of worship. Make this a time when our hearts uh, turn from worshiping idols and, and things of our own desires, that we would turn from those and worship and love and adore and delight in you. And we pray, Lord, that that would have the effect of doing all that you've commanded, that we would do all that you've commanded from hearts made new after seeing the beauty of your Son. And we pray for anybody that's here that doesn't yet know you, Lord, we pray that this would be the day that they would have that second birth. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So we're going to be now in Isaiah 53. And if you're visiting with us, and we're thankful you are, you came at a good time. So we're in the middle of Advent. Advent's our way of preparing our hearts for Christmas. It's for us to get the meaning of Christmas right. It's to get our hearts right. Even the secular culture knows that it's easy to lose the right meaning of Christmas, even though they don't know what the right meaning of Christmas is. We know what it is, and it's still hard. And so Advent's about tuning our hearts for Christmas and thinking about Jesus and and his birth. Christmas, guys, is one of the five major stops on the church calendar. So you you have Christmas, you have Good Friday, you have Easter, you have Ascension, and then you have Pentecost. And those are like the big five stops we have around the calendar. And what's interesting about those guys is those are all commemorating historical events, okay? In a lot of religions, there's festivals and things for the changing of seasons and harvests and stuff like that. Christianity doesn't have those. Christianity has markings of historical events because this is a historical faith about things that actually happen in history. And Judaism is the same way. And so we commemorate these historical events, and all of them are historical events in the life of Jesus. Christmas is celebrating Jesus' birth, his incarnation, when God the Son took on a real human body, became a real man, still God, so he's the God-man, incarnated, to be the God-man for our salvation. And in our Advent series, what we've been doing is looking at why did he become a man? And we're looking at three things that he came to do. He came to be a prophet, to give us God's ultimate revelation. He came to be priest, and he came to be king. So this morning, we're going to look at the, the priestly part. And what's really neat, just to orient you in Isaiah, is that the prophet, priest, and king are all persons in Isaiah. So Isaiah, 700 years before Jesus came, prophesied in the first 39 chapters that a king was coming, a king in the line of David that was going to set things right in the world. And then in uh, chapters 40 to 55, he talks about this servant character who seems to be maybe different, maybe the same person. It's not real clear when you read in Isaiah. So you got the king, then you got this servant, and in 53 you see this servant is suffering. And then later in the book, in, in 61, you see a messenger so you actually have all three. You have a king, you have a priest, and you have a prophet all in there. And what's really neat is when you would have read Isaiah back in the day before Jesus came, you might wonder, are these three people that are coming? Is there going to be a king and a suffering servant 
and a prophet? Or are, you know, are these all one person? And what we find when Jesus came is that there's this wonderful merging of all three. And uh, this morning and also tonight, we're going to talk about Jesus as priest. And so we have um, Advent material for you guys. And if you don't have an Advent guide, um, please let me know and I'll email you one. But tonight we're going to light the uh, we're going to light three candles, and tonight you're going to talk to your family or if you, you have roommate or friends. Those guides are really for for adults as well. Um, you're going to talk about Jesus as priest, and that's what we're going to talk about now. And whatever kid was strategic picked to light candles later in Advent because they get to light more of them. So if your kid's really sneaky, they're like, oh no, I don't want to, you go first, you know, because they want to be able to light more candles. Um, So that's what we're going to do this morning. The purpose of the priest in the Old Testament was to purify the people and make a way to God. The classic example of this is Aaron. He was the kind of classic Old Testament priest. We need priests too. We need somebody that's going to purify us, take away our sin, because we're sinners. God is holy. We can't approach him. He's inaccessible to sinful people. And so we need a priest that's going to purify us and make our way to God. And Jesus is that gift to sinners. He is that true priest. Isaiah 53, guys, shows us exactly how he did it. And when you look at Isaiah 53, and I'd love for you to look at it, so if you don't have a Bible, like pull it up on your phone, or actually on the back table there's some Bibles. But if you, as you look at Isaiah 53, you're going to see that there's like, there's three strings strands in Isaiah 53, and we got a slide for this. Um, there's three strands throughout. There's kind of a strand about his, his suffering, so that the, the servant's going to suffer, and I put those in red. And then there's a strand of like, what did this suffering mean? There's a meaning strand. I put that in green. You don't have to be able to read this. I just want the visual effect. And then there's a strand of victory, and they're woven in. It's like Isaiah 53 is like a, a rope with three strands. And there's a suffering strand, and there's a meaning strand, and there's a victory strand. And you can see that they kind of pop in. You've got like suffering, then a little bit of the meaning, suffering, more meaning, big part of suffering. And then you start to get near the bottom some, some hints of victory, that somehow there's going to be a victory through suffering. And so that's what we're going to look at this morning. We're going to look at the suffering of the Messiah, the meaning of his suffering, and then we're going to look at the victory of his suffering. And as you look in your Bible in verse 2, you'll see that the suffering gradually kind of ramps up. It starts with his humble roots, his humble beginning. It says in verse 2, For he grew up before him like a young plant, like a root out of dry ground. He had no majesty or form that we should look at him, no beauty that we should desire him. So he looks like a normal person, and Jesus fits this really well, right? Kind of an ordinary life, grows up in a nowhere town, a Nazareth, poor family, you know, and people, he starts going around and kind of putting out these Messiah, what do they say? Isn't this the carpenter's son? Like, who is this guy? We know this guy. He's from a very humble background, consequently he gets rejected. Look at verse 3. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised and we esteemed him not. And then you start to get in from rejection to suffering. And you see that in verse 4 throughout. And the suffering, there's actually 12 words in this passage, words about suffering. You could circle them and circle every word that looks like it's talking about suffering. There's 12 different words here used for suffering. But what's really cool is they take on this very specific form. In fact, okay, so this is written 700 years before Jesus came, and yet gives very profound details of his sufferings. And I want you to just do as a thought experiment. Uh, think of 700 years ago, so the 1300s. What happened during that, that uh, century? Anybody got any homeschoolers here? Any homeschoolers know what happened in the 13th century? What? 
a plague. Okay, that's, that's great. Thank you. And they are homeschoolers, very classically trained homeschoolers. Very good. So the rest of you, shame. Shame on your public schooling. So um, the plague. So we don't know much about it. What I'm trying to get at is that that was a really long time ago. And it's crazy to think of something being predicted 700 years before and then having this amazing clarity come forward in Jesus. I mean, it's an amazing proof of who he is. It says things about, like, the legal injustice he faced. Take a look at verse 8. By oppression and judgment, he was taken away. We know from, from the accounts in the Gospels that Jesus endured multiple trials, illegal trials, some of them at night. Um, And we know from their conversations that it wasn't about justice. It was about how to dispose of him. He he was mistreated by the justice system. We we also see in this passage how Jesus was mercilessly beaten. And to see that, you have to back up to Isaiah 52, uh, 14, where it says, As many were astonished at you, his appearance was marred beyond human semblance. Isn't that incredible? You know that that description? That in... um, that's in, yeah, that's in verse 14. As many as were astonished at you, his, Jesus' appearance was marred beyond human semblance and his form beyond that of the children of mankind. It's a description of how Jesus was beaten mercilessly, right? He was scourged. They whipped him with cords that had pieces of bone and metal and it went into his back and it would like hook like fish hooks and then it was shredded his back over and over again. I'm not good at sentimental Christmas, by the way as you can tell. But they would whip him, they would hook in there and shred his back, and, and his face was beaten, you know, and thorns were put on his head. I mean, by the time they were done with him, you guys have seen like the Passion movie, it's like, is he human, right? That's what that passage is saying, that he'd be beaten that badly and mocked. It also talks about Jesus bore it silently. Look at verse 7. He was oppressed and afflicted, yet he didn't open his mouth, like a lamb that was led to the slaughter, like a sheep that before its shearers was silent, so he didn't open his mouth. This isn't talking that Jesus didn't say anything during his trial, but he was very quiet. And it freaked Pilate out, right? Pilate said, hey, I can get you out of this. Help me out. Give me something to go on. See, Pilate's so used to when he talks about crucifixion that whoever before him would be, they'd be willing to say anything. Their mouth is running like crazy. They didn't figure any way to get out of being crucified. But Jesus is just, he's silent. He's like, do what you got to do, right? Because that's exactly what Jesus came to do. He wasn't trying to avoid the cross like every other uh, offender that came before Pilate. He was not trying to avoid the cross. He was born for the cross. This passage also hints at his crucifixion. Look at verse 5. He was pierced for our transgressions. This is 700 years before Jesus came. Um, Psalm 22, which was 1,000 years before Jesus, is even more specific. It says that there would be a company of evildoers that would encircle the Messiah and pierce his hands and feet. Okay? This is a method of, of execution that wasn't invented yet. And yet, here it is being prophesied that it would occur. Crucifixion, guys, was, was the death for the worst of the worst. Right? In verse 4, when it says that we esteemed him stricken by God, um, smitten by God and afflicted, the Jews had a belief from the Old Testament that anyone who died on a tree, died on wood, was cursed. So they saw Jesus as accursed. Um, for the Romans, it was a cursed way to die too. Um, crucifixion was the way that they would, in their minds, torture and humiliate human trash. That they would only put somebody on the cross that they considered human refuse. That he was trash to them, and they wanted to torture and humiliate him in the most dramatic way possible. It also talks about how the Messiah, Jesus, would die. Look at verse 8. He was cut out of the land of the living. 
He was cut off from the land of the living. And then surprisingly, in verse 9, it even prophesies that he would be buried in a rich man's tomb. This is strange. This is, you don't expect this, somebody being treated so poorly and all of a sudden luxurious tomb, right? Look at verse 9. They made his grave with the wicked, okay, that's what they did on the cross, and with a rich man in his death. You remember the story, you remember from the Gospels, that there was a man, uh, that, kind of a secret disciple, Joseph of Arimathea, that wanted his body and to be put in a tomb that had never been used before. Strange twist, very unexpected. You see how amazing this is? Isn't it amazing you have a passage so old and that would predict so clearly the birth of Jesus. And I want to just say to any of you who are here that may not be believing in Jesus at this moment, why not? I'm kind of wondering what else you're looking for. Because this is incredible that you would have in such rich detail a picture of the death of Jesus 700 years before it occurred. It gives us a great reason to be confident in, his, in who he really is. And the thing is, it's not like somebody's going to read Isaiah 53 and go, you know what I'll do? I'll stage it. You're not going to do that, right? This isn't even something that you would have full voluntary control over, how you get buried and how you're killed and all of these details. And yet, we have something super amazing here in these predictions. But you know what else is cool in this passage? Is he doesn't just predict the sufferings of Jesus. He also gives the meaning of the suffering. Isaiah not only gives detailed prophecy about the cross, he also gives a detailed theology of the cross, which I think is amazing. I think sometimes we miss it because we're just we're so amazed by the fact that he predicted Jesus's sufferings and all these details, you know, 700 years before he came, that we might not notice also that he didn't just give a detailed prophecy, he gave a detailed theology here. He t- told us not just what was going to happen, but why it happened. And when I was a kid, um, I think in elementary school, maybe fourth grade, fifth grade, um, I didn't grow up in a Christian home. My parents got saved much later. But I didn't grow up in a Christian home, but there was a, one of these Jesus movies on. It was probably really bad. I mean, it was a long time ago. But um, there was a Jesus movie on, and I, it was just on TV, and so I watched it. And I was interested in it, trying to figure out what was going on there. And then the part came with the crucifixion. And not having any knowledge of what this was about, I mean, I just, I remember being super sad. I think I remember crying watching this and being like, why are people so evil? You know, it was just shocking. You watch him do miracles, you watch him do all these things, and then you're like, wait, why did this happen? And I had no idea. I had no idea why he died. What's really cool is that Isaiah tells us not just how he dies, but why he dies. So what is the meaning? What is the meaning of Jesus' death? Is it just another example of how savage people can be, you know? But it isn't, because Jesus was born and died to be our priest, right? To purify us, to make a way to God. He is a gift to sinners. And Isaiah shows us here a meaning to the cross that you wouldn't see with your natural eyes. If you were there that day, you would have no idea why it was happening. And just as if you watched that movie and no one explains, you would have no idea why it was happening. And yet Isaiah tells us the meaning. He starts in verse 4. He says, Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. And then see the but? He's like, okay, I'm going to give you meaning here. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. With his wounds, we are healed. The theological term for this, uh, what Isaiah is revealing here, is called penal substitutionary atonement. Penal meaning punishment, substitution meaning he's in our place, and, um, and atonement meaning he took away our sin. So Christ, 
of his own sacrificial choice was punished, penalized, in our place as our substitute for our sins. That's what Isaiah 53 screams, okay? And it's a teaching, actually, that's a distinctive of Protestants. I don't know if you guys realize this, but it's a distinctive of Protestants. Catholic Church doesn't hold to this view of the atonement. Orthodox Church doesn't hold to this view of the atonement. A lot of Protestants don't hold to this view of the atonement anymore, um, which I think makes it questionable that they're Protestants. But this passage tells us that Christ, by his own sacrificial choice, took a punishment, punishment from God, on himself in our place, completely voluntarily. Christ died for us. And this idea of substitutionary atonement actually didn't start in Isaiah. If you guys are familiar with the Day of Atonement, so if you look at Leviticus 16, there's this really interesting thing that would happen once a year on the Day of Atonement, which I think lands in the fall, doesn't it? Does it land in maybe October, November? It lands in the fall. And at the Day of Atonement, they would take two goats, right? And one goat they would sacrifice like they normally would. They would um, consider their sins being transferred to this goat, slit its throat, you know, take the blood, make a sacrifice and stuff. But they did something really interesting with the second goat. This is the goat you want to be, by the way, if you were going to be one of the goats, is the scapegoat. And the scapegoat was interesting. They left the scapegoat alive. And what the priest would do, Aaron did it first, is put his hand on the head of the goat, confess all the sins of the people, and it's like all the sins are being transferred to the goat, and then they kick him out of town. And if you try to come back, they kick him out again. And what that was to symbolize, guys, is that our sins exile us from God. Our, our sins cast us out of God's presence. So you have two images there. You have our sins deserve death, and then you have our sins deserve exile from God. Isn't that powerful? And that's where the term scapegoat comes from, by the way. It wasn't like a term they already had. It comes from that. That's the goat that escaped, that's cast out. And the amazing thing in Isaiah 53 is that you don't have two goats being the substitute for atonement here, but you have one man. And you don't have something that's going to be repeated every year. You have something that's going to be done once for all. And guys, that is the reason for the season. Okay? A lot of us are like, reason for the season, you know? And we mean reason for the season is Jesus' birthday. And it is, but that's not deep enough. Reason for the season is Jesus came, live a perfect life, and die for our sins and make full atonement. And, and that's why Jesus had to be both God and man. Uh, Anselm of Canterbury. So this is 11th century. So if you want to fill in that time period, 11th century, Anselm of Canterbury said this The debt was so great that while man alone owed it, only God could pay it. So that the same man must be, the same person must be both God and man. And so you have, you know, man alone, us, deserved to pay the penalty for our sins. It had to be human, right? And yet there's no human being that's holy and righteous and, and, and no one can do it in our place. So God himself, the Son of God, becomes a man, so he's both God and man, to be our perfect atonement. And that's why the incarnation is so important. That's why we celebrate every year. Not just that he had a birthday, but that he became God and man to be, our, um, to be punished in our place. Look at verse 5. I want you to see this, um, this idea of Christ being punished in our place because it is highly attacked in our culture. Verse 5, it says, He, Jesus, he was pierced for our transgressions. You see the he and the our? He was crushed for our iniquities. He, our, see the exchange there? Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and by, with his wounds we are healed. Do you see the he, us, he, our, back and forth? It's substitution language, right? That he took our place. You know, we deserve this, he went there, we came here, right? Um, look at verse 6, same thing. We, all like sheep, have gone astray. We have each turned to our own way, and the Lord has laid on him, 
the iniquity of us all, right? Do you see how our sin debt, if you're believing in Jesus Christ, you're trusting in him, your sin debt was taken off you and loaded up on him. All your sin loaded up on him. And that's what he was doing on the cross. And look at verse 8. It says, he was stricken for the transgressions of my people. So those strikes, those piercing, that was for us. He took that on in our place. How many of you guys are thankful for that? Yes, so you guys are quick on the draw on that one. That's great. Um, I'm thankful for that too. I mean, how many of you guys woke up this morning even thinking of some sin that you had committed even a long time ago that kind of raised this ugly head and you've, you've confessed it, you've repented of it, and it pops up again? Or, you know, even just sins on the way here and you think, oh, you know, I don't really, what am I doing coming to church? I'm such a fake. I'm such a fraud. And, you know, when I talk to my wife this way or I treated my kids like this on the way here, you know, the thoughts I'm having, right? And you just feel like I'm unclean. And all that was placed on Jesus. All our iniquities were laid on him. And then look at verse 10. Verse 10 is deep waters. Verse 10 is disturbing. It says this, It was the will of the Lord to crush him. How many of you guys have an NASB? Anyone? NASB? What does it say? The Lord was pleased to crush him. It's even more intense, right? Same idea. Why? He was bearing our sin. Yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him and to put him to grief when his soul makes an offering for sin. Is that your view of the cross? That your sin was placed on Jesus such that God crushed him in your place. <laughs> it's intense, right? That is what this passage is saying. And you might be here and not a Christian, and you're like, well, I sin a little bit. I do a little this, a little that. I don't know that I really need a Savior. I'll tell you what. If God was going to overlook sin, that would have been his best opportunity to do it when it was on his son, right? He doesn't overlook sin, obviously, right? And so he crushed him in our place. Jesus' suffering, guys, and this is, this is the part that's intense. Jesus' suffering was ultimately inflicted not by the soldiers, but by God. His suffering was ultimately inflicted by God. God the Son bore the wrath of God for us. And this is where we get into, like, it's really important, guys, the truth of the Trinity, you might think like, oh, what does it matter whether you believe in the Trinity or not? You can't have an atonement like that without the Trinity. You can't have God bearing the wrath of God unless God is three persons, or at least two, but he's three, right? And so you need the Trinity for that. That's what we have there. And then take a look here at verse 11. He says at the end, by his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, Jesus, make many to be what? Accounted righteous. He will bear their iniquities. Do you see the great exchange there? Our, his righteousness given to us, our sin given to him. Jesus gets our sin, we get his righteousness. It's a great exchange for us, not a great exchange for him, right? Do you see the penal substitutionary atonement? I think it's super important that we acknowledge this as a church, that Jesus was punished, he was penalized in our place as a substitute for our sins, and there's many other things that the, that the cross is about. It's about the defeat of Satan. It's an example to us of obedience to God. It's a bunch of other things. There's a bunch of views of the atonement that are true. But this one is very true as well. And we need to acknowledge that this is core. And the reason why I say it's core is because this is the big passage about the cross in the Old Testament. This is it. And if you go like, okay, what's the second biggest? Leviticus 16 and they're both talking about the same thing, right? That he was crushed in our place. Now, some people don't like this, and what they'll say is it sounds unjust. You know, why you pick an innocent guy out there and beat him up instead? Seems wrong to do. 
People have even called it, thinking about the Trinity, that it's divine child abuse. That it's God the Father abusing his son for no good reason. Okay? Um, two things I want to show you with this is that Jesus' death for you in your place on the cross for your sins was entirely voluntary. He did this for you. He meant to do this. He came to do this. When you look at um, Hebrews 10, uh, it's a little passage where Jesus is speaking to the Father. This is pre-incarnation. And he's come to do God's will. He was born to do this. He came to do this. He offered himself. So this is not unjust in the sense that some innocent guy was just picked out of a crowd. and, and, and This is God the Son intentionally offering himself for you. It's an amazing act of love. An amazing act of love. Jesus said this. I love this. John 10, 18. He says, no one takes my life from me. I lay it down of my own accord. I have authority to lay it down, and I have authority to take it up again. He's like, I know this looks like I'm falling into a trap. You know, you think of Judas and all these things going on, and it's like, oh, you know, like when I was watching that movie, I didn't get that Jesus was like, no one takes my life from me. Don't get the wrong idea here. Looks like I've been trapped and cornered. It looks like I can't get away. Oh, I can get away. Right? I can call down angels. I can leave any time. He gave himself for you. Jesus gave himself for you. He gave his head right, for the thorns. He gave his back for whipping. He gave his wrists to be pierced with those nails. He gave his feet. And he gave it all voluntarily, guys. Hammer that first wrist in. You know what he did with the other one? He didn't do this. He did this for you because he loved you. He offers his feet. He offers his side. The whole thing was offered for you. It's exactly what he came to do. Guys, this is super important for you to realize. Jesus was not a victim. He was a volunteer. And we're also going to see in the last point, he was a victor. Okay? Jesus was not a victim. He was a volunteer. And he was a victor. And see, that takes away that whole issue of like, you know, all that nonsense that people say. I just think that like us 21st century people, that maybe we've gotten a little soft. We've got a little wimpy. And we just can't deal with all this. And it's like, we ought to wonder about our culture. If we're so soft and so, you know, influenced by our culture that we can't handle just kind of the red meat of Isaiah 53 and the cross, that's a problem with us, guys. That's not a problem with God. That's not a problem with the gospel. That's a problem with us. And so whatever it is in our heads, we need to just dig a little further. Doesn't it help to know he's not a victim? He's a volunteer and a victor. And the victor part is that last strain, that last part that's kind of woven in here. And you see it kind of pop up near the end. When you first see it um, in verse 10, it kind of comes by surprise. It actually pops out of the darkest verse in the chapter. Take a look at verse 10. Yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief. When his soul makes an offering for guilt. Super dark, right? Super painful, his suffering and all that. And then look what happens. He shall see his offspring and prolong his days. And the will of the Lord will prosper in his hand. And you're like, what? I thought he was dead. So did they. They thought he was dead too. It's a huge reversal right in the middle of a verse, right? All of a sudden, okay, wait, he died. He was punished. He was marred beyond all human semblance. He was crushed for our iniquities. All these, he was pierced. He died. And then what? Then you'll see his offspring and prolong his days, and the will of the Lord will prosper in his hand. And you're like, what's going on? There are hints of resurrection in here, aren't there? There are hints of resurrection. It's not just the cross. We've got his victory, his resurrection. Psalm 22 does the same thing, by the way. Go back and look at it, and you'll see hints of resurrection there. Um, but look at, look at that again. Um, verse 10, the inha- it says prolong his days. Sounds like resurrection. He's going to prosper. Look at verse 11. 
he shall see and be satisfied. Isn't that cool? I love that. Jesus will see what he did and he'll be satisfied. You think like, what's he satisfied about? You guys ever had a really long, hard day at work? You guys really had a really difficult project you had to do for school or you had to do for work and it's all this toil, all this stuff, and finally it's done and you have your Sabbath, you have your seventh day of rest, you look back on what you did and you're like, good. The rest is so much better when you see how difficult it was and what you accomplished. Guys, imagine the satisfaction that Jesus has right now after what he did. He's seeing it, and he is super satisfied. Super satisfied. He did the most amazing, grueling, painful, hideous work ever, and won. Look at verse 12. It says, therefore, and this is God speaking, therefore I will divide him a portion with the many, and he shall devoid the spoils with the strong. We're spoils. This is about war, right? This is about victory, He was victorious on the cross. A lot of times we miss this. John paints this really carefully. If you watch it, you'll see all this language about king and kingship. Uh, The cross was about Jesus becoming king in a new way. And if you take a look at verse 1, it even says this. It says that the cross was about what? The arm of the Lord being revealed. I love that. See that in verse 1? The cross was about the arm of the Lord being revealed. The cross was God the Son's power display. I know it looks weak, looks like defeat. It's not. He's doing exactly what he intended to. He's defeating the powers of evil and Satan and darkness and sin. He's flexing his arm and winning, right? This is God's mighty arm at work. And in a way that we never would have guessed, which shows his amazing intelligence and his amazing creativity, but he flexed his arm and won. Jesus' suffering and death was about his victory. You think, okay, well, what's Jesus doing now? Well, he's reigning at the right hand of God the Father Almighty. He's ruling. He has all authority on heaven and earth, right? And he's enjoying the rewards of his suffering, you know, like a Sabbath day rest, thinking back about what he had done in the world. What's he doing as priest in this passage? What's he doing right now as priest? Having, he's making intercession. I love this. You see that at the end of verse 12? He bore the sins of many, and he's making intercession for the transgressors. Have you thanked Jesus lately for his prayers for you? Don't you love it when somebody prays for you? Don't you love it when you feel like that person's like kind of holier? You're like, I'm going to get this guy to pray for me, right? I'm going to get this lady to pray for me. And then they tell you they've been praying for you, and you believe them because they, they're that kind of person. They're, they're praying for you. Are you thankful? Have you thanked Jesus lately for praying for you? It says here that he intercedes. That's what priests do. They offer a sacrifice, and they offer prayers. He says he intercedes for you. Hebrews 7 talks about how Jesus is so much better than the Old Testament priests at praying for us. It says it this way. The former priests were many in number because they were prevented by death from continuing in office. This is a nice way to say it. They croak on you, you know? Like you have a priest, you kind of got attached to him, you told him all your trash, and then he died, and you got to tell the new guy all your trash, and it's terrible, right? You're just getting comfortable. It says, the former priests were many in number because they were prevented by death from continuing in office, but Jesus holds the priesthood permanently because he continues forever. He's an eternal priest. Consequently, Jesus is able to save to the utmost those who draw near to God through him, and then listen to the since, because he always lives to make intercession for them. You think, Jesus, thank you so much for praying. You realize that if you're a believer, you're trusting Jesus, Jesus prays for you specifically by name all the time. 
How does that feel? Feel a little sense of security there? That is your security, by the way. He says here that he is able to save to the utmost since he always makes intercession for them. Jesus' intercession is the only reason you're here. Jesus' intercession is the only reason you're still believing. Jesus' intercession is the only reason you haven't made shipwreck of your faith. He always prays for you. That's the security. Makes perfect sacrifice. Forgive your sin. you got this whole life of all kinds of hazards. Jesus praying for you the entire time to make sure you make it to the end. Robert Murray McChain, he was a pastor in the 1800s. He died of tuberculosis like 30. Amazing guy, though. He said this. If I could hear Christ praying for me in the next room, can you imagine that? Imagine if you could hear him praying for you in the next room. He says, if I could hear Jesus praying for me in the next room, I would not fear a million enemies. Those many enemies are health or financial or relationship, right? He'd be like, I, I hear Jesus praying for me. I'm going to be fine, right? He says, if I could hear Christ praying for me in the next room, I would not fear a million enemies. Yet distance makes no difference. He is praying for me. He's praying for you too. If you're trusting in Jesus, he prays for you every day specifically. Have you thanked Jesus lately for his prayers for you? They are the only reason you're still standing. They are where your confidence shall lie. Remember his prayer for Peter? Jesus says this to Peter. Simon, Simon. You know he's in trouble when he says that. Simon, Simon. Behold, Satan demands to have you, that he may sift you like wheat. But I prayed for you, that your faith may not fail. And when you have turned again, strengthen your brothers. How do you like that? Every one of you guys, Satan would love to sift you like wheat. Right? He'd love to have you. What protects you? Jesus' prayers. He's a perfect priest. Perfect priest offering a perfect sacrifice, offering perfect prayers for us, guys. This is the reason for the season. How do we respond? I want to talk about how we respond, and I'm going to do it from the first verse. I want to talk about how we respond. Take a look at the first verse. Who has believed what has been heard from us, and to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? Um, Has this been revealed to you? So I'm going to be real personal with you. Have you heard this gospel? You have. We can check that. It just happened. Have you received it? Have you taken this into your heart? Are you ready at this point to grab hold of that? You say, well, I got all these other things in my life. Don't worry about that. He's going to help you. He intercedes, right? He's going to help you get through whatever else there is. But have you taken a hold of Jesus? You need to do that right now. Because if you haven't, you need to do it right now. Because there is no security that you have another day, right? The Psalms talk about that. Today, do not harden your heart. Like, if you're open to it today, take it today, right? And so how do we respond to this? Believe and be baptized, Believe and be baptized. If you're trusting in Jesus, you want to get baptized, Josh and I will make sure that this happens. If you want to do it ASAP, we will do it right away, right? We will get you baptized. We would love to see you get baptized. This passage was actually used right before baptism. You guys remember Acts 8? I love Acts 8. So this is an Isaiah 53 evangelism thing, right? So Philip's cruising along, and he hears a guy in a carriage reading Isaiah 53. And he's like, I think this could be a good gospel opportunity right? And so he goes up to him and he goes, do you understand what you're reading? And this Ethiopian eunuch, this guy that was from Ethiopia that had been visiting uh, Jerusalem is headed home and he goes, how can I unless somebody guides me? And he invited Philip to hop in his carriage with him and sit with him. Now the passage of scripture that he was reading was this, like a sheep that was led to the slaughter and like a lamb before its shearers is silent. So he opened not his mouth. In his humiliation, justice was denied him. Who can describe his generation for his life was taken away from the earth? Isaiah 53, right? 
And the eunuch asked Philip this, about whom, I ask you, does the prophet speak? About himself or someone else? This is like the craziest softball evangelism opportunity ever. Like I was reading the gospel, and I just need to know, is this Jesus or what? Yeah, this is great. This is a great opportunity. Sometimes, you know, when we're not good at evangelism, God will give us a real easy one. Okay, then Philip opened his mouth and began with the scriptures, and he told them the good news about Jesus. And as they were going along the road, he came to water, and he said, See, here is water. The eunuch does, this Ethiopian guy. He says, See, here is water. What prevents me from being baptized? And he commanded the chariot to stop, and they both went down in the water, and Philip and the eunuch, and he baptized him. And when he came up out of the water, the Spirit of the Lord carried Philip away, and the eunuch saw him no more, and he went away rejoicing. That's the response, right? You hear it. It's news about what God did. You receive it. You believe it. You get baptized. Um, If you're trusting in Christ as your priest who's made the full penalty for your sin, then it's time. And sometimes we'll talk to people, and they're new believers, and they're like, you know what, I kind of got to wait till this is a little more legit. Like, I got to wait till I really proven myself. That's not what the gospel's about, guys. Gospel is about what God has done. If you're receiving it, it's time to be baptized right away. So let us know. And the other thing you could do is this morning, take the Lord's Supper. This is only for those who are trusting in Christ. We take the Lord's Supper to remember his death, to receive his filling, and to rejoice in his coming again. You say, well, what other response should I have? Another response that I think comes from verse 1 is we should be making this known, right? Well, you just heard, like, would you agree with me this is good news? Would you agree with me that every single human being needs to hear this news, right? Would you agree with me that a lot of people have no idea what this is about, right? Just as clueless as I was as a kid. Would you agree with me that we ought to make this known, right? We need to make it known. There's so many people that never heard, never understood. And I want to warn you, though, about making the gospel known is there will be a cost, okay? You're like, oh, there's a cost? There should be, okay? There should be a cost. This is normal. Is in our culture, we're consumeristic. We avoid pain. We're kind of all about our comfort. And so like, oh, cost. Ooh, okay. That means I shouldn't do it. Oh, you know, it's going to offend people. Ah, I should probably not do it then because that's not nice, right? Whenever we come up against a cost, we start to think we're doing it wrong, right? But it should cost. There's a cost, guys, of our public witness here. Okay, like this, what we're doing right now, this costs. It costs like some guy getting up early, getting his truck, going over to the place, over the storage place, grabbing the trailer, driving it over here, people unpacking things, people putting things together. You got people doing sound. You got all this set up, and it's chaotic because something's wrong every time, right? And then you got children's ministry. You got people over there that are they're, they're suffering, perhaps, maybe. And if they are, you know what? It's good. It's good that they do, right? It's good that they suffer, right? It's a good thing, right? Because we can easily fall into this mindset that a consumeristic mindset with church, can't we? That like we're going to peruse and we're going to look for like the best services for ourselves. We're going to look for the easiest thing to do. You know, if there's any friction, if there's any difficulty, if there's any cost, then we don't do it. But guys, where did we get that? We follow the suffering servant, right? He creates a community of servants that are willing to suffer to make him known. And this thing, this public witness, is going to require some suffering. If it costs you to be here this morning, and it costs you to be a part of this church, that's great. You're on the right track. If it doesn't, you should wonder, right? If it's too easy, I know this sounds counterintuitive. If your Christian life is easy and not painful, and there's not a lot of suffering to make Christ known, you're doing it wrong, right? There's also a cost, guys, for our public witness out there, right? Because this news 
needs to be made known. And what's so cool is we have so many ways to make it known. We've got those Luke books out in the lobby. Take a bunch of them. Give them to people. The first few chapters are the, are the story of Jesus' birth. And you just ask them to keep reading, right? And discuss the Gospel of Luke. You can share audio. You can share po- the podcast. You can share other podcasts. I mean, we have so many ways. You could start an evangelistic conversation by text message. We live in a good time, right? We live in a good time. You know, we could start it that I'm not saying we complete it that way, but we could start it that way, guys. But it will cost us, right? It's going to cause some awkwardness. I was reading recently that Christians used to, in evangelism, they used to be afraid of the raised fist. Now they're afraid of the raised eyebrow. Yeah, that's the sound I made too. Mm, right? We used to be afraid of the raised fist. Now we're afraid of the raised eyebrow. Guys, let's not be afraid of the eyebrow. Okay? Right? We follow the suffering servant. We have the best news in the world. We should make it known. It will cost us too, guys, to witness to the nations. That's going to cost us, and it's good. And I just say to you this morning, if you're a follower of Jesus, and it's not co- and world missions isn't costing you anything, then you're doing it wrong. And somebody famously said that we have three options with world missions. We can go, send, or be disobedient, right? We can go, we can send people, or we can be disobedient. Guys, Christ is worthy of our suffering. He is so worthy of our suffering. And I know I'm talking, we're like, I don't know what this is, 21st century, it's like we all kind of want to be like mildly sedated and maybe have some lidocaine rubbed all over us so that we don't feel any pain or discomfort. You know, I don't know where this is going. (laughs) It's not going anywhere good, right? But we don't want any pain at all. If anything causes pain, it's a problem. I was reading this recently that, you know, mainly us Americans, we mainly talk about Christ sharing our sufferings. But you know when you read the ancient authors, they mainly talk about us sharing his sufferings. Isn't that interesting? And he does share our sufferings. But it's interesting that we don't have a category for sharing in his, which is actually the emphasis of the older authors. Check out this. Check out what God the Father said to Jesus, God the Son, in Isaiah 49. He says this. This is God the Father speaking to Jesus and says this. It is too light a thing that you should be my servant to raise up the tribes of Jacob. He's like, Just that? It's too light a thing for you. I will make you a light to the nations, that my salvation may reach to the ends of the earth. Isn't that awesome? This is God the Father saying, you need to be famous. Everybody needs to see who you are. Everybody needs to love who you are. Everybody needs to know and worship who you are. Is that your life? And you think about, like, in what ways am I encountering hardship and making Christ known among the nations? We're going to have Lorian. She's going to come first week of... Uh, January, talk about her ministry, and she's doing it, and Holly's doing it, and I know many of you are doing this too. Don't feel like I'm picking on you. Many of you guys are encountering all kinds of suffering to do these things, but I just want you to know it's normal. Christianity is normally painful. Church is normally painful. Evangelism is normally painful. Serving the church is normally painful. There's, there's all kinds of hardships we all encounter just to do this together, and they're very, very normal. In fact, they're a little too light. I'm not going to try and make it harder, but it could get harder. And if we're like so sedated and rubbed in lidocaine gel to where we can't do this, it's going to be really hard, isn't it? Because the Bible talks about it getting more difficult. And so I just want us to be ready. And guys, this, this task of the Great Commission, do you realize it's completely doable in our generation? Like Jesus said, he said this, check this out. 
Matthew 24 says, This gospel of the kingdom will be proclaimed to the whole world as a testimony to all nations, all people groups, and then the end will come. That could happen in your lifetime. Like, this is a completable task. You realize that there are nine unbelievers for every believer in the world. Even if we, count, we don't count nominal Christians, we count them as unbelievers, which they are. There's probably about nine unbelievers for every believer in the world. We're used to hearing that Christianity is declining. It's not. Evangelical Christianity is, is growing at a rate three times population growth right now. Like, this is a completable mission. In our lifetime, we could evangelize the whole world, and we could complete the Great Commission, and we could trigger the return of Christ. That's a button you might want to push, right? Yes, please. That would be the way to do it. He said, when the gospel's preached, all nations will return. So be a part of that. Go share. Christ, guys, has earned this. My last point is that Christ has earned it. Like, Revelation 5.9 says this. By your blood, Jesus, you have ransomed people from every tribe and language and people and nation. Guys, Christ has purchased for him a people. But the wild thing is he did the work, but he's not receiving all the worship he should from the work. Because there's people that have not yet received the gospel. So he did the work, but he's not receiving the worship yet. Guys, missions exist because Christ is not yet receiving the worship he's due. I'll tell you a quick story about that and then we'll end. In 1732, there were these two Moravian Christians in Germany, and they had learned in church, when the church gathering, that there were thousands of African slaves working in the West Indies on islands like uh, St. Thomas and St. Croix, and that these slaves had no access to the gospel. These are thousands of slaves on slave islands. No way for them to hear the gospel. And these two guys decided, you know what? We're going to volunteer. We're going to volunteer to go there and work. If we have to, we're going to sell ourselves into slavery to these slave islands to be able to bring the gospel. And of course, they got all kinds of resistance from their church. If anyone ever has an idea like that, do not resist it, okay? This has got to work. Don't be like, no, 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 that sounds painful. It's like, nope, this is right. So they get on the ship, family's weeping, they're sending them off. And these two guys, they raise their hands together and they say, may the lamb that was slain receive the reward of his suffering. Amen? Let's stand and worship him. Father, we thank you for the lamb that was slain. Thank you so much for the lamb that was slain. It's so easy for that to roll off our tongues, but Lord, the work. I think of your sacrifice, Father, that you gave your only son. I just think, I'm not giving my son for anyone. And you, you gave your son not for friends, which I wouldn't do. You gave your son for enemies. Thank you for the gift of your son that happened in the incarnation the beginning of the giving of your son. We thank you, Father, for doing that, that you would have such a love for sinners and that you would desire so much to make us your sons and daughters that you would give your perfect, wonderful son who has always been the joy of your heart, who has always been your delight, you would give him for us. And Jesus, we thank you for being obedient to the call to come, to lay down your life for us, to endure the full penalty of our sin. We don't even know what that is. We have no idea how much you suffered for us. The bit we see that's physical is just the tip of the iceberg, and even that part makes us turn away in horror. So we're so thankful, Jesus, that you would come and do this for us. Thank you for making the full payment for our sins, that we, we bear our sins no more. 
you died that we no longer have to die, that, that our death from this world will be undone at the resurrection, that we will enjoy the new world in your presence, that we will enjoy your company for all ages, and we're so thankful for that. We're so thankful that you have freed us from the penalty of hell. We were headed to outer darkness where there's weeping and gnashing of teeth, and yet you took that for us on the cross. We are so thankful for that. And Holy Spirit, we are so thankful that you opened our eyes to this. Even going back there, we're so thankful that you empowered Jesus to do this for us. As it says in Hebrews, that by the eternal spirit he offered himself, that you somehow strengthened him to do this work, and that now you have come into our lives, opened our eyes to the beauty of Jesus. So many of us can remember when we had no interest in Jesus, and yet you opened our eyes and you gave us new hearts, and now he's all we want to talk about. He's all we want to think about, and that's your work, and we thank you for that. Lord, help us to worship you in spirit and truth. As we take communion, Lord, help us to really be fed by being in your presence, that you would send your son to die for us, and then you would adopt us, and you would invite us to your table is is a mystery. Your love is mysterious. Your love is not like any love we've ever heard of or ever seen. It's something pure. It's hard to even call what we do with each other love, or even what we give to you. It's hard to call it love in comparison to the way that you have loved us. God, you are good. Take away the nasty cancer of sin in our hearts and our suspicions about your goodness. It's just more manifestation of our evil. We pray, Lord, give us hearts that are just incredibly thrilled with you. And I thank you that you do that. I mean, you've not left us um, without really radically making us love you. And this worship, Lord, is a small token of what we have. Um, We pray you give us more to give back to you. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for listening to this week's podcast. If you'd like to know more about our church, you can email us at info at covgraceminifee.org. May the Lord bless your week and guide your steps.